All right. Now to the text. And boy, is it a doozy. Um, you, read, you follow as I read, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 9, and I'll read through verse 14. And it reads like this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second Only the high priest goes, but he goes once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink uh, and various washings, regulations for the body imposed under the time of reformation, until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Quite a text, huh? (laughs) Did you get lost in it? Uh, I wouldn't blame you. Um, Guys, I'm not man enough to preach this whole thing, this whole text in one sermon. I'm not sure I can do it in five sermons, but um, we're we're just going to have to skim the surface of this text. Um, in the interest of brevity, I mean, um, guys, nobody has ever accused me of being laconic, but, um, this, this series cannot go on forever. And so, uh, we're going to try to, uh, go a little bit faster. And, and interestingly, the author of the book seems to do the same thing in verse five, when he says of these things, we cannot now speak, um, we, we cannot speak in detail. Um, he seems to pause, but I can't go into all this right now. He says, neither can I. I can't go into all of this, but I'm telling you guys, this is one rich text. And um, we're going to have to skirt over or or scoot over a lot of the things, but we're going to land on one of the things that's in it that I hope will be uh, to your profit. Um, Guys, as I read the text, did did it remind you of anything? Did did it, it, uh, ooh, ah, that sounds like, uh, did, 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 did you think of anything? I mean, did it remind you of the book of Leviticus? 
Because basically, the, um, the New Testament version of the Old Testament Leviticus is the book of Hebrews, which really kind of, you know, frightens me a, a, a bit for this reason. You know what Leviticus is, don't you? I mean, <laughs> Leviticus is not exactly what you'd call one of the more favorite books of the Bible. In fact, it's the, uh, it's the graveyard for all of those uh, read the Bible through in a year plans. <laughs> uh, did you ever do one of those? You know, you, you, you started on January the 1st and you said, well, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. You know? And so you, you got through Genesis and then you kind of eked through Exodus and somewhere around uh, mid-February, um, you got into Leviticus, and the whole thing fell apart. Um, you know, I, I can't study that. I quit. Well, um, uh, what I'm saying is uh, that kind of um, information or subject matter that you find in the book of Leviticus is also found in the book of Hebrews. So I'm hoping um, that you won't quit on me. I'm hoping that you'll, you'll find the, the great beauty of this portion of God's Word as uh, not only does the book of Hebrews, not only is it kind of the New Testament Leviticus, but it also teaches us how to, how to read the Old Testament. What you're getting here is uh, some references to some Old Testament stuff that we'll look at in just a second. <clears throat> but the book itself, that is the book of Hebrews, is one of the best commentaries there is on how to read the Old Testament. Uh, you read, you notice in verse nine, it talks about this is symbolic, and we've been on Wednesday nights talking about what Paul says in Galatians four about uh, you must understand this allegorically, and if you don't come on Wednesday nights, may the fleas of a thousand camels nest in your armpits. Uh, but we've been we've been talking about that on Wednesday nights, and and here it is again, and what I want to do is just show you what the what the author is up to, and then try to bring you into. Um, a, a, a most needful and I, relevant and, I hope, um, practical discussion. We'll get there in just a minute. Um, guys, in the, in the first 10 verses, I hope you'll notice, what he's doing in the first 10 verses is that you get a brief summary of the Old Testament worship. Did you notice in verses 1 through 5, he is, um, he's describing the temple. Now, he uses the word tent, yes, but the tent was just the uh, temporary movable version of the, of the tabernacle. And you know that the tabernacle is comprised primarily of two big rooms. There was the holy place. He mentions it in here. It was the holy place, and then there was the, ho- the most holy place, you know, and there was separated by a veil, a big old thick curtain, you remember? Well, that was the temple, and he mentions that. He mentions a couple of pieces of furniture that, you're, that are found inside it. And then when you get over to verses 6 and following, there's more specificity because he raises the issue of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. You remember what happens on Yom Kippur? You don't, I mean, all of the normal worship services take place in the, in the first room. But one day a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest goes back behind the veil and all of that big stuff, you know, that uh, big day of atonement stuff, takes place in Israel on the day of Leviticus 16, one day a year back there in the most holy place. Now, all of that, he tells us, was just one giant parable. Symbolic, he says in verse 9. Hebrews comes along and, and, and tells you 
that all of these things that you saw in the Old Testament, they were, they were forecasting. They were prophetic. They were pointing you to the, um, the ultimate fulfillment of those things when Christ appeared. That's what it says in verse 11. Look at your text. When Christ appeared, and it's in verse 11 where you begin to see what the author is really up to. All of that Old Testament stuff, you got the temple, you got the David Domain, you got the furniture, yada, yada, yada. It was supposed to point you to the coming of the Messiah fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so what you're, what you're seeing in this whole section of these 14 verses is an a fortiori argument. Now, maybe most of you know what an a fortiori argument is. Um, it's basically reason, reasoning from the lesser to the greater. He's saying all this stuff in the Old Testament, lesser, He's pointing, if, if, the, if you did that there, then how much more? And you'll notice that's exactly what he does in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. It's a comparison, guys. It's a contrast between when Christ appeared, verse 11, as compared to that stuff that you found in the Old Testament. Okay? Now, in his comparison, he gives you four specifics. He compares and contrasts four things. And, and each of those things, he's saying, if that took place then, how much more this thing? That's an a forty, an a fortiori um, argument. That's what he's doing. <clears throat> he gives you four specific comparisons. Number one, location. The location of that, that uh, original temple, I mean, it was made by hands, you know, and, and it was on earth. But the big one, the, the one to which it pointed, the, the, the real one, mm, it's not on earth. And it's not made by hands. So that's his first comparison. If this one, which is the lesser, did this, then the greater. Okay, that's the first comparison. Here's the second. Location means. And then he introduces this whole thing about Goat blood. <laughs> hey guys, from now until the end of chapter 10, you're going to hear a lot about blood. Um, we have been attacked or criticized as Christians because of the emphasis upon blood. There's a lot of blood here. Um, people suggest that we are guilty of butcher shop theology. But the point that the author is making here has to do with what is it that cleanses? Goat blood or Christ's blood? And of course he says, goat blood doesn't cleanse you. It's, it's, it's Christ's blood. that uh, There's another blood, and he says it in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse? Um, now, brother and sister, hear this. You will notice that it says here, it wasn't the life of Christ that cleansed you from sin. It wasn't his prayer life. It wasn't his resurrection. It wasn't his second coming. It's his blood. And notice also in verse 14, it, um, he mentions that he offered himself. Gang, do you know how much different that is than the 
than the other religions of the world. I mean, do you get that? I mean, um, Jesus Christ is the sacrificer and the sacrificed. He, He gives him, I mean, it cannot be more strongly said. He offered himself. Now, Aaron and those other guys, those, uh, those human high priests, they went back behind the veil and they offered blood. They brought goat blood with them. But Jesus offered himself. He voluntarily entered the womb of a virgin knowing that it was going to ultimately lead to bloodshed. His. He offered himself. And then You'll also notice in verse 4, it says, he does so without blemish. No, no Old Testament high priest could say that. No dirt on me. They couldn't say that, but this one could. He offered himself without blemish and notice to God. He doesn't offer himself to the devil, as some suggest. Um, he offers himself to God. So, <clears throat> gang, what goat blood could not accomplish... Christ's blood did accomplish. Do you see what's going on in, your, in the text in front of you, ladies and gentlemen? The one that confused you when I read it, it's, it's, it's not that confusing. He's, he's comparing, well, that other place, it was on, made by hands and it was here, but there's other, there's other, the real one, I mean, it's not made by hands and it's there. <clears throat> and as far as the means that are, that are observed, mm, goat blood versus Christ's blood, I, goat blood didn't do it. What goat blood couldn't do Christ's blood did. Now, here's his third comparison. The third specific has to do with frequency. Gang, um, the human high priests went behind the veil once a year. (laughs) Christ went back there once. He tore down the veil and he never came out. There was a once-ness. Uh, a Philip Hughes word, but a once-ness to Christ's accomplishment. Uh, it couldn't be happened. It couldn't happen twice. You see, it's once versus once a year. The lesser, once a year. The greater, once. The, the human high priest spent their entire lives on the other side of the veil, living with sinful man, and once a year they went back there, and as soon as they finished their work, they got out, and the sign went back up. Keep out. Don't come back here. Versus Christ, who goes behind that veil. He tears up the sign. He uh, tears down the veil, and everything that has separated sinful man from God, he removes. Um, the lesser as compared to the greater. So those are three of the specific comparisons that he makes. The location, the means, and the result, the, um, the frequency. There's one more. And this is the one, ladies and gentlemen, that you cannot miss. You cannot, you, you got to get this, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm telling you, you're going to need it. If you don't need it today, you'll need it later. It has to do with the results. 
Now, gang, if, you, if you've closed your Bibles, you need to reopen them. And I want you to look or crank up those phones again or whatever. I want you to look at verse 9, excuse me, verse 7. Um, this is the fourth of the four comparisons. It has to do with result. But into the second, that is the second room or the most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he goes once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for, I wonder if you've ever seen this word, for the unintentional sins of the people. Gang, and then, then add to that verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Gang, what the author is giving you, he's giving you a glimpse of the imperfections of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement worked only for the unintentional sins. You know, one day you just happen to be walking outside and you brushed up against a dead body. <clears throat> and it renders you ceremonially unclean. Or you did something in it because you didn't know about that. And so the Day of Atonement addressed those unintentional sins. But guys, what about the intentional ones? What about the ones like David and Bathsheba, the adultery, the affair, the murder. That wasn't unintentional. So now what is David to do? The Day of Atonement doesn't address those. And so David, you see, he's on his own. So he is left with a wounded, with an active, with an aroused conscience. Because the Day of Atonement didn't address those intentional ones. Just the unintentional ones. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the unintentional ones that keep us up at night. Are they? It's the ones that I did knowingly. The ones that I planned and I plotted and I schemed and I chose to do. What am I supposed to do with those? You know, you find this. You find it in not just David Bathsheba. How about the story of um, uh, Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery? Remember that? And then Joseph goes down to Egypt and he rises to the right end of Pharaoh. And then, and 20 years later, 20 years later, his brothers come down and eat some food. And so this, this thing erupts and it's a, it's a difficulty and a piece of ugliness. And they're standing there and they're, they're thinking, oh, this thing is coming unraveled. And I know why. 20 years later, they say, I think it's chapter 42, they say, I, I know why we're going through this. It's because of what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. 
Not not an intentional sin. An intentional one. And then in the New Testament, you, you, you come across Herod, who murdered John the Baptist. Remember that? And then he hears a little bit later on about this, this new prophet in town. His name was Jesus. And Herod says, in the midst of one night where he couldn't sleep, I know who he is. It's John the Baptist raised from the dead because of what I did. You know, it reminded me of a short story that's written by Edgar Allan Poe called The Telltale Heart. You need to read that one. It's, it's not that long. And uh, this man murders his neighbor because he didn't, it was an old man. And he didn't like the way the old man looked at him. He said he had vulture eyes. Didn't like the way the man looked at him, and so he killed him, buried him under the floorboards of his apartment. So when the neighbors reported that they had heard a scream in the night, the, the police show up. And uh, they wonder, where, where's the old man? And the murderer says, oh, he's out in the country. He's just vacationing. And um, while the, uh, the police inspector is there, he thinks he hears the, the very quiet sound of the beating of the man that he had killed. He had dismembered him and put him under the floorboards. But he, but he thinks he hears the heart beating. And then it gets louder and louder and louder until he's driven mad and he confesses what he's done. You know, all of this hullabaloo was associated with, with the Day of Atonement. It couldn't quiet my conscience. How do you know that, Dr. Young? It says it in verse 9. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't need verse 9. Neither do you. You know this is true. You know that there's something on the inside of you that says there's something wrong with you. There's, there's something on the inside that is this, this internal inflictor of pain. One writer, one writer said that the conscience is like a barking dog at night. A barking dog at night that just can't be silenced. You know, I guess the, um, the greatest illustration of what I'm saying comes from a piece of literature by Shakespeare. You know the one, Macbeth. But it really wasn't Macbeth, it was Lady Macbeth. You know, um, Macbeth was one of the generals in the king's army, and he leads the army to this great unexpected victory, and, and King Duncan wants to promote him. And on the way back, uh, or when he finally gets back to the castle, he runs into, I forget what they're called, demons or something. He, he runs into these devils that tell him, you're going to be king. And so that was all he needed. But there already was a king, King Duncan. We've got to get rid of him. And so he and his wife conspired to, to murder the king. 
And so uh, they do. They murder King Duncan. And there's in scene five, um, it's nighttime. And Lady Macbeth cannot sleep. And um, she's roaming the halls of the castle. And you know, you know what she said? She says, out, out, stem spot. We all know about that one. But there's more in that soliloquy, ladies and gentlemen, that is just moving. She says, all of the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten this little hand. What's done is un- cannot be undone. And though she tries, the dog just keeps on barking. And so when the dog begins to bark, what we do is we 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 redouble our moral efforts. We say, we gotta get back in church. You know, we need to throw a few bucks into the plate. Maybe we should, uh, you know, teach a Sunday school class. In the midst of all of our moral effort, the dog keeps barking. You see, ladies and gentlemen, at the center of this text that once read it kind of confused me. I don't know what that said. At the center of those 14 verses, ladies and gentlemen, the author's argument, he's pointing you, he's allowing you to see the failure of the old covenant. Gang, at least part of the failure of the old covenant is that it cannot address my conscience. What do I do? What do I do with the sins that were intentionally done? What do I do with the sins of my heart? And the old covenant is silent, it has no remedy. The tabernacle and the priests and the day of atonement and all that goat blood. None of it. None of it could silence the barking dog. Guys, nothing is as hard on me as my own conscience. There is nothing that I can do to quiet it. Oh, you Christians, you make me sick. I, I, I'm not like you. I, I, I don't live under the shadow of religion. I, I have to look in my own heart, and I have to decide what's right or wrong for myself. I have my own moral universe. I simply ask my heart what's wrong. I don't let people, I don't let people put guilt on me. And the barking continues. 
And yet, guys, in verse 14, we are given the remedy. The remedy for the barking dog. Why can I, as a Christian, enjoy a quieted conscience? Look at verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Look at this. Thus securing an eternal redemption. He purchased it, not potentially, but actually. All of my sins eternally, the ones in the past, the ones in the present, the ones in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what eternally means. Can can a genuinely converted child of God ever be lost? Not if eternal redemption means anything. Guys, it is Christ and His sacrifice that offers me an escape from the superficial temporary appeasements of law. I don't fear an eternal damnation because I have been purchased with an eternal redemption. Redemption is just a word that means I've been delivered by a payment. What payment? payment has been made what can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus and I want you to know ladies and gentlemen that Jesus Christ offers you a remedy for a guilt laden conscience and no other religion on the face of the planet offers you that not Islam Not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not Judaism, not Mormonism, not Jehovah's. They don't address the conscience. It is only Christ and His eternal redemption that allows me to to quiet the barking dog. And then notice he adds in, in verse 14, um, Offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our consciences from dead works. And then he adds, to serve the living God. Gang, this is why we were made. To serve this God, to not serve him, is to make us the loser. It's like trying to live without, like a fish out of, out of water. This is our honor. It's our design. The possibility of real service to God now exists because my conscience has been cleansed from dead works. And so often the thing that gets in the way of that kind of service is a guilt-laden conscience of dead works. I'm still dealing with guilt over sins that I committed 20 years ago. A guilt-stained soul, ladies and gentlemen, can only serve God with dead works. 
Guys, there is a human need for cleansing. And that remedy is offered to you right here in Hebrews chapter 9. J.C. Ryle once said that nothing can, can quiet a guilty conscience but the blood of Jesus sprinkled on it. My friends, I don't know how deeply your sin goes, but this much I can tell you. If God had wanted to save a billion planets with trillions of sins on each one of those planets, it would still only require one sacrifice of Christ. Jesus didn't die to make God love sinners. He died so that the love of God could be reconciled to the justice of God. God's law had to be satisfied. The debt had to be paid. And I am telling you, on the authority of this book, the debt has been paid in blood. You know, guys, maybe now you'll understand why I say this frequently. There's no, sin as, there's no sin quite so great as the sin of refusing God's method of dealing with your sin. We sing a song around here. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. Ladies and gentlemen, every person in this room has a guilt problem. Yeah, well, I sure do. But don't bring God into it. That only makes it worse. Not if you bring this God into it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is only Christ and Him crucified that can erase that damned spot. It is only the shed blood of Christ who can quiet the barking dog. You've been looking in the wrong place. It's only the blood of Christ that can quiet a guilty conscience. Oh God, I pray that you will remind us as your people of the beauty of the gospel that is preached to us. It's one that addresses the conscience when no other message, no other, no other religion even tries to address that. But it is Christ and Him crucified that will cleanse the conscience from dead works.
what a joy it is to preach it. What a privilege it is of mine to tell people that that barking dog can be silenced. We bless you, O God, for finding a way to save people as overtly guilty as we are.